and welcome to Novel Thoughts, a weekly book chat podcast hosted by me, Sapphire Bates, and me, Joseph Dance, two book lovers from Ramsgate, East Kent. This is the podcast for the big readers and the book lovers. Once a month, we deep dive on one particular book, maybe an old favourite or something new and exciting, and we will read and discuss it. The rest of the time, we're spoiler free, covering everything from new releases, old gems you might have missed, long lists, short lists, author spotlights, as well as the occasional interview. We'll also take questions from you, our lovely listeners. This week, we are deep diving. Oh yes, spoilers are incoming today. We are going to be discussing The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt, and we are lucky enough to be joined by Michelle Thomas. Welcome back, Michelle. Hello, hello. Hello, hello, hello. Hi, Michelle. What's up? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying out a new thing there. Hi, how are you? Yes, you don't okay? do that again. Okay, sorry. <laughs> it's lovely to see you. It's lovely to see you both too. Before we deep dive, some housekeeping to share with you. When Joseph and I began planning this podcast, we wrote a list of words that we felt represented us and what we hoped to carry through to this project. Those included anti-hustle and sustainability. We really want to get across to you, lovely lot, that reading is not a race. It's something that you should feel free to do at your own pace so that it remains enjoyable and not a chore. We really want to embody this ourselves too. So we've decided that every six weeks we'll be taking one week off from recording to give ourselves a week of free reading. It might not be obvious from the other side of the podcast, but we have to plan our reading schedules to ensure that we get everything read for each episode on time. This is fun, but we both agreed a week off every six weeks would make this much more sustainable and give us a week to breathe. We hope you'll allow yourselves this week to go slower too, whether that means not picking up a book and watching a show instead, or perhaps picking up a comfort read. Just know there's no pressure. Our podcast should be a place of inspiration for you. We don't expect anyone to read everything we mention. Instead, just pick and choose anything that stands out to you. Right, housekeeping monologue officially over. I want to know what you've both been reading this week, please. I have been reading the new novel by Melissa Broder, Death Valley. Have you heard of this one? Yeah, I've read it. Okay, well, do you want me to talk we'll about it? We'll still talk about yeah, it, yeah, yeah. obviously. Yeah. I was just excited. I'm trying to remember, how, how does the podcast work? Do I still need to talk about it if, if, if Saf's already read it? No, Probably. that means it's old news. <laughs> Michelle, do you know about Melissa Broder? I do not. Okay. Tell me about Melissa Broder. I, I will. will. listen with open ears. I shall. <laughs> um, well, I really liked her first novel, which... No, I think it was her second novel, Milk Fed, which I don't think you liked, Saf, did you? No, so she did The Pisces... Then Milk Fed, yeah. and then Death Valley, right? And she wrote loads of poetry before that and did an yes. essay collection and had a really infamous Twitter account called So Sad Today, which is very oh, funny. Oh, was that her? She talks about depression and yes, anxiety, yeah. but in a kind of comical, Okay, yeah, I think I follow kind of that Twitter account, or did follow that Twitter account. Yeah, I loved the Pisces, didn't like Milk Fed. Very, it's very foodie, isn't it? It is quite foodie. It's the story of, from memory, a young liberal Jewish woman in LA. And she strikes up, she's got, well, she's got like an eating disorder. She compulsively counts her calories. But she strikes up this relationship, this very sensuous, strange relationship with an Orthodox Jewish woman who works in a frozen yogurt store that yes. she frequents. And then this woman starts feeding her. And it's all about mother surrogates and there's a bit of mysticism in there mm. and it's all about body image and self-esteem i kind of feel like this new novel is treading familiar ground so i'm going to read you the synopsis first if that's okay yeah go for it so a woman arrives alone at best western hotel seeking respite from an emptiness that plagues her 
she has fled to the California high desert to escape a cloud of sorrow for both her father in the ICU and her husband, whose illness is worsening. What the motel provides, however, is not peace but a path, thanks to a receptionist who recommends a nearby hike. Out on the sun-scorched trail, the woman encounters a towering cactus whose size and shape mean it should not exist in California. Yet the cactus is there, with a gash through the side that beckons like a familiar door. So she enters it. What awaits her inside, this mystical succulent, sets her on a journey at once desolate and rich, hilarious and poignant. Before I go any further, I need to say that the PR person who paired the words mystical and succulent needs a pay rise. (laughs) So I would say, as with all her novels, this one was very funny. I love her brand of urbane, self-deprecating Jewish humour. I really liked the lead character. She was neurotic, but she was also pragmatic and she had a really dark way of looking at the world Mm. and her relationships, which, which I always appreciate. I think Broder seems to have a like a, a natural talent for writing characters that are really introspective and anxious, but she manages to do that without making them sound really whiny or annoying, which I think is kind of like a, a feat in itself. I can appreciate from the synopsis how the weirdness of the plot might put some people off, but I would say give it a chance. The magical cactus and the other strange plot devices that pop up are sort of symbolic, maybe? I th- yeah, I, I think Broder's... Are you vibing that? Yeah, Broder's really good at using kind of really weird and strange storylines or aspects of the story to help represent and symbolise... Totally. ...big feelings and topics, I think. Yeah. It's always heartfelt. There's all, Even if it's a really strange book, you still... There's a lot of emotion in there. Yeah, completely. And I think in this book, all of those weird cacti and weird things that she finds in the desert are definitely about grief and death and reinvention. Mm. And I was going to say, if because we, we spoke about her last week, if you like Sheila Hetty's novels, and she uses a lot of dream imagery as well, this is kind of more of the same. You'll be used to this. I just thought it was a great book and I'd really recommend it. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Great. What Thanks else that did you vote re- of overwhelming enthusiasm. <laughs> See you next week. My second book was a bit different, actually. I went nonfiction this week for my second pick, and I read Duty Free Art, Art in the Age of Planetary Civil War by Hito Styro. Have you heard of her? Have you heard of this? No. no. So Hito Styro is a German filmmaker, artist, and writer, and I have to admit, I haven't seen a lot of her artwork or her film work, but... I have been reading her essays for for quite a while. She used to, and I think she still does, publish on a website. It's like an e-journal called eFlux. And it's all about contemporary art and culture. So you can access that for free. And I'd recommend going and have a look at the essays on that. So this book was published by Verso in the UK back in 2019 and is a collection of 15 essays, many of which, having read her work before, I think deal with themes and ideas that she's she's kind of been preoccupied with for a long time. So she writes about the interplay between art, politics and war. For instance, how as a, I guess, a civilised society should we view the act of art washing? Are we all familiar with this term? Mm. Yeah, just double checking. You know, how should we feel about global arms manufacturers like Lockheed Martin or big petrochemical giants like Esso sponsoring a museum or a gallery? And basically funding cultural production and distribution. And I think that's an ongoing conversation. Well, we're definitely having that conversation today. She talks about how the shock value of art has been reframed by the way we consume 
war. Um, I guess, like, on our phones, in bite-sized segments, and I suppose vice versa as well, how modern art, entertainment, culture, and especially video games distort our view of war, genocide and natural disasters as well. Interesting. Yeah, it's a really hmm. interesting collection. She's kind of a futurist. She's like, she's up for trying to predict where the art world will go in the future. And there's a great essay where she talks about how museums and galleries are continually collecting data from their users so that they can provide like a hyper-tailored experience for whoever's visiting. She kind of plays on this and she says that in the future, she thinks that galleries will use facial recognition software to scan users as they enter. (laughs) I know, shiver, shudder. (laughs) And only show them the works of art, the works of art that fit their demographic um, or their character profile. That's horrendous. Yeah, that sounds so bad. Well, I mean, this hasn't happened yet, but she calls this neuro-curating. Which feels like something straight out of a William Gibson yes, novel. Yes, but it is already happening. If you think about the stuff that you get recommended by algorithms. Yeah. True. They, they know what you like, so they just give you more of the same. And that would be, that's the whole point, is that you go to an art gallery to see things you don't expect to see. Yeah, you yeah. want to like stumble upon mm. things and be moved by things spontaneously. I dislike algorithms for that very reason that you've just raised, Michelle, that like I like one funny animal meme and then suddenly I'm shown hundreds and nothing else. I don't want that. I want a mixture of things. I want to be surprised and moved and... Well, like, back in the day, I remember a friend um, didn't want to buy stuff online. I don't know why. They just, like, didn't want to put their card details into Amazon. So I said, I'll buy some books for you. And they were really into true crime. And so I bought some cookbooks and then I bought these true crime novels. And for ages, my recommendations were just this weird mixture of inside Holloway and Nigella Bites. <laughs> it's weird how the algorithm stalks you. I remember years ago, an older relative using my laptop for a day or so. And for about six months afterwards, I was getting a little ad pop up saying, buy your perfect burial plot in Eastbourne. <laughs> I well, shouldn't laugh. At least it wasn't anything kinky. That would I, yeah, I, I yeah. wonder what you were going to say. I mean, he was planning ahead. Yeah, but he then he wiped the cash. It was right. I don't think he knew what cash was <laughs> in computer terms. He would have tried to have spent that in a shop. But it's, it's a fantastic collection. I'd really recommend it. I think that sounds really good. Michelle, what have you been reading? Um, oh, gosh, lots of things. But the two I picked to talk mm. about very briefly, because I don't have even a clue of what year they were published in. I haven't, sorry, haven't done my research. How, <laughs> how informed and prepared. <laughs> you spoil us, Michelle. Um, a Curious History of Sex is by Kate Lister, who used to run, an, I think it was on Twitter, a Twitter account called Halls of Yore. Okay. I don't know if you've come across this. Great title. Yeah, then she felt bad about it because obviously we don't talk about whores anymore. We talk about sex workers. And so I think she shut it down because she felt that whore had a pejorative implication. But it's all about like prostitutes during the... um, like Covent Garden era, and when they used to have those Victorian... had their little guide to like the best prostitutes and all the things that they would do. Anyway, A Curious History of Sex is... She just talks about sex through the ages, but she talks about things like when bicycles were first introduced, the Victorians were horrified by this because they thought women would be like orgasming all over the place <laughs> as they cycled around on their bikes. I wish. <laughs> no, I wish. I have a bike right outside. It's very disappointing. And you've got nothing out of it. And I don't wear bloomers or anything. Um, but um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's, fu- it's funny and clever and interesting. It has a sort of broadly feminist vibe to it as well. But yeah, it's just a good fun, fun read. And the other book that I'm 
dipping into because I've been doing a Game of Thrones rewatch, which has led into a House of the Dragon rewatch because I'm getting ready for the new season of House of the Dragon. So I've been having a look at Fire and Blood by George R. R. Martin just to get back into the world of incest and dragons. Sounds good. Amazing. I've just finished Game of Thrones. What, the book? For or the, the first time. The, the TV, TV series. The many, many books. And I haven't been able to get into the House of Dragons. Try harder. That's all I can say. Thank you for that. <laughs> it's totally your advice. fault. Yeah, clearly it's my fault. I'll give it another go. I love House of the Dragon, but I'm a big Paddy Considine fan. I think he's awesome. He's fantastic, mm. yeah. Saf, what have you been reading? I, I kind of uh, ended up quite themed this week. So the first book that I read was The Son of Rosemary by Ira Levin. Why? I'm just curious. What? Have you read Rosemary's Baby? Yes, yeah, of okay. course, yes. Oh, so, I didn't know where that was going. That was yeah. quite confrontational, yeah. but, but, I, but I liked it at the same time. I was like, should I not have? <laughs> yeah, yeah well, I would say, yeah, cord, why, Sam? Uh, when I saw that this is what you'd read, I was like, I didn't even know there was a sequel. And then I quickly no. Wikipedia'd it, and then I was like, oh. <laughs> yes. This is a sequel. Yes, yeah. so obviously <laughs> Ira Levin, blown. unless you've been under a rock for however long, wrote Rosemary's Baby, and I read Rosemary's Baby and thought it was it was amazing. And I, as I've said to you before, the only kind of classics I really read tend to be like classic horror or dystopian um, because I like to see how the contemporary authors have been influenced by classic stuff. And I come across The Son of Rosemary in a charity shop and it had same kind of, it's a very similar cover to Rosemary's Baby. It was just green rather than red. And I was like looking at the back and, and yes, this is the sequel to the 1967 Rosemary's Baby. Oh. And I didn't, I, like Michelle, didn't even know there was a sequel. Now, I read it. It's not amazing. <laughs> That's oh. why, hence why I said why. Yes. So <laughs> this could be why lots of us aren't aware of the sequel because it did, I don't think it did as well as, as Rosemary's Baby. But do you know what? It was, it wasn't bad. I enjoyed reading it. I didn't DNF. I got all the way through it. I just very much knew what was going to happen. Like, the plot wasn't necessarily very clever. You weren't like, who's the father? Yeah, <laughs> yeah there was no, like, plot twist where you're like, oh, my goodness, I didn't see this coming. I put the book down and was like, well, yeah, that was that was as expected. But I had a, I had a good time. It is a nice... It's. I found Rosemary's Baby quite... I read Rosemary's Baby a really long time ago, but I remember it being quite scary, whereas... The Son of Rosemary reads more like a thriller, like it's not particularly creepy or, you know, you're not kind of curled up under a duvet, like, oh my goodness, covering your eyes. It is more thriller-esque, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what? but it's, it's interesting. It's set in 1999 and it's like the turn of the millennium and it's kind of based around that and set in New York City. Time has moved forward a lot since Rosemary's Baby and, and yeah, I, I think it's worth a go if you enjoyed Rosemary's Baby just to see what, what he's done with the sequel. I love the film. I haven't read the original book, but this sounds interesting. I'm intrigued. I think I read the book. I can't even remember if I read the book or if I've just seen the film. I've read other books by Ira Levin, like The Boys from Brazil. I mean, he's one of these twisty writers, you know, it's always a twist. Yeah, see, I didn't really get that with Son of Rosemary. Mm. I didn't feel like, uh, didn't really find a twist or perhaps the twist was just too obvious and, and you knew <laughs> what it was going to be. But it hasn't put me off. I'm going to read more Ira. Like, And I, I picked it up in a charity shop for like £2, so... I'm happy with that. Great. <laughs> okay, and then the other book I read was Tack To Me, an anthology of Arctic horror stories. I've heard of this. See, I hadn't, and I stumbled across it. It was probably on TikTok where I tend to find lots of random books. So it's a collection of short stories by Indigenous authors. All of the stories are based in the farthest northern reaches of Earth. 
um, an area of the world that spends half of the year in perpetual darkness. So Taktumi translates to in the dark, which each story kind of like is very dark. It's sort of very horrifying and, and really captures the unique landscape. And the landscape is almost like a character of its own within these stories. I really, really, really loved this collection of stories. Really clever. A lot of the stories are built around folklore and myths. So I found it really fascinating and also scary. It's like a perfect wintry read. Mm. Do, do you have a standout story that sticks with you? There was a couple that were very dystopian, kind of zombie-esque. And they were really up my street. I don't want to say too much about them because I, I think you want to go into it kind of blind like I did. But I really loved those because that's right up my street of kind of scary stories. But there wasn't a story in it I didn't like. Mm. I find zombie stories really interesting because psychologically at their core, they're meant to be about what would happen in war or like societal breakdown. Would we help each other? And I don't know about you, but having gone through COVID, which you've all gone through as well, so I went through my own personal COVID <laughs> and I found that people did help me and they really liked me no I mean we've been through that so we know that there is going to be some degree of cooperation I suppose it's just tapping into that fear isn't it that I, I mean it's slightly different what though, would happen if you know when, mm. when the shizzle hits the fan what would actually happen I think the difference is that during COVID, no one was actually trying to eat your brain. Yeah, that the 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 and I did have my uncle stay with me, <laughs> <laughs> and society didn't completely collapse. Whereas in a lot of these dystopian zombie stories, it's about societal collapse, and thus with no overarching kind of power or government, no kind of systems in place every man for himself then how do humans react do we still stick together or do we become okay i don't want to labor the point but i do feel like you've just described britain in 2024 <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean yeah i mean i think the best zombie book uh did either of you read world war z yes by Max Brooks? i love that i feel like it's it's seen as quite by people that haven't read it any kind of zombie novel and especially world war z is seen as like a bit tacky maybe or a bit cliche but it's actually an amazing book I like think it's really cleverly written it is very I good i think it's because of the film yes the, and the uh brad pitt didn't mm. it yeah the, the book's amazing and it's yeah it's all written in like different people's perspectives and and really clever one of my favorite zombie books great i i'm talking of zombie things i mean obviously the last of us was just the most amazing tv show last year and i think Petra. in that the the yes Petra. Um, but in The Last of Us, obviously, there was cooperation between the zombies. They kind of worked together. I mean, they're not zombies, so they are zombies, whatever you want to call them. But they worked as one giant organism in the same way that mushrooms have a mycelium. I thought that was really clever. And mm -hmm. yeah, I'm obsessed with Pedro Pascal. You know, he was in Margate the other day. Yep. Oh, God. <laughs> Do, so doing what? Um, hanging an art out. gallery. Just, just going, yeah, to, going really, to Morrison's. He's really into art and he was hanging out with um, Robert Diamond. I think they're friends and... Um, Russell so, Tovey. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and that okay. kind of crew. Oh, my God, so, oh, so close. Oh, you've I just, love him so much. He, didn't he, he came to Margate a couple of months back, yeah. didn't he? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Oh, I thought you said the other day. Well, yeah, as in recently. <laughs> oh, right, okay, sorry. I wasn't in storytelling mode. <laughs> Did, didn't he go to a gallery to see a, a portrait of, of himself? Him. But, yes. it was but it was closed. Potentially. <laughs> I mean, I was just excited. He's so close. He's so handsome. Okay. He, has, he is handsome. Very handsome. 
Okay, anyway, move us along because I'm, I'm going to... Otherwise, we just sit here drooling yeah. about Pedro Pascal. Do we have any more books we <laughs> want to talk about this week? No. Shall we dive into our deep dive, guys? Let's do it. Okay, so we're talking about The Goldfinch this week. Should we start with a synopsis? Yes, please. Okay. Age 13, Theo Decker, son of a devoted mother and a reckless, largely absent father, survives an accident that otherwise tears his life apart. Alone and rudderless in New York, he is taken in by the family of a wealthy friend. He is tormented by an unbearable longing for his mother and down the years clings to the thing that most reminds him of her, a small, strangely captivating painting that ultimately draws him into the criminal underworld. As he grows up, Theo learns to glide between the drawing rooms of the rich and the dusty antique store where he works. He is alienated and in love, and his talisman, the painting, places him at the centre of a narrowing, ever more dangerous circle. Ooh, beautifully written. Thank you. Shall we... <laughs> Why are you saying thank you? You didn't write it. <laughs> thank and you. beautifully read. I thought Michelle said beautifully read. I did, beautifully I read. Heard. Oh, I thought you said I'm beautifully just written. always on like... the lookout for compliments, so <laughs> that's how my radar is tuned. Perfect. <laughs> I'm going to tell you a little bit about Donna Tartt. I yes. feel like no one needs to know anything about Donna Tartt. Because no one she's knows really much well about Donna Well, that, that's true as well. But anyway, Donna Tartt is a novelist, essayist and critic. Her debut novel, The Secret History, remains a best-selling cult dark academia novel and has been translated into over 30 languages since its initial publication in 1992. That feels like such a long time ago. Yeah, I wasn't even born. When were you born? Okay, Catholic? now I feel old. 1994. Mm. As I said, I'm convinced that I'd read this book in around 1988, so who knows? Maybe, maybe you knew someone with a proof copy. It was the black paperback, though, so I definitely didn't. Okay. Well, we'll skip that anyway. <laughs> so her second novel, The Little Friend, a southern gossip, a southern gossip. Her a second, gossip novel. <laughs> it's like the babysitter's club. Her second novel, The Little Friend, a southern gothic, which echoes Tart's own childhood experiences of growing up in Mississippi, was published a decade later in 2002 and went on to win the WH Smith Literary Award. Are they still around, WH Smith? Just Probably, yeah, but they're not giving out awards anymore. No. And was shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction, which I think back in the day was called the Orange Prize or something like that. Her third novel, The Goldfinch, which we're talking about today, was published in October 2013. It was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction and the Andrew Carnegie Award for Excellence in Fiction in 2014. It was also shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction and was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. In Europe, the novel was awarded Italy's Malaparte Prize in 2014 for Best Novel by an International Writer. Now, I can't really ask, had you heard of Donna Tartt before picking up The Goldfinch, as you would have had to have been in a decades-long coma to have escaped all the hype about her work and her as an author. She is the reclusive literary genius of our times, much like J.D. Salinger and Thomas Pynchon were before her. She's also got not much of a work ethic, in my opinion. <laughs> One novel every <laughs> ten years, but they're really good. I mean, she published the, the Secret History when she was twenty nine, just twenty nine, putting her on the map as one of America's greatest fiction writers. So she really did solidify her reputation with her debut, which is impressive, I think. She's also got one of the and Michelle, you've just referenced this, one of the most famous publication schedules in history producing a novel pretty much every decade, which means we're actually due for one soon. Yeah, there are lots of rumours, aren't there, that there's another one yeah. coming. 
she's actually hinted that there's another one coming, but no publisher is kind of, there's nothing actually that I can, like as a bookshop owner, normally if something, if something's going to be out 2024, I would already, even if I couldn't see the cover or anything about it, it would already have a little side note that we'd know that there was a book right. coming from Donata and currently there isn't anything. Nothing. So I don't know. Nothing on the computer. She hasn't sent a text message. No, I mean, she's, we're pretty close. <laughs> she's she's stopped raven. answering your calls. <laughs> so it's kind of timely that we're discussing the Goldfinch then, given that there might be a new Donatar out this year. Yeah. So initial thoughts. Have you read her work before? And what did you think of the Goldfinch? You're looking at me. I'm looking at you, <laughs> <Okay>. Robert De Niro. <laughs> <laughs> yes, as I said, I've read The Secret History. I am still absolutely convinced I read this at university, but I can't have done because it wasn't published when I was at university. So, But I do remember we all read it. It was one of those books that was passed around and was just like, have you read The Secret History? And then I bought The Little Friend in hardback. So it's still sitting like the Bible in a shelf in my house untouched because it's massive. It is a big book. And I just find hardbacks, they're just too big. They're too, you can't carry them around. They're too See, I love awkward. a hardback. I like them, but I just, they're too big. And I just, so I'm, I am, it's one of those ones where I'm like, at some point I'll go back and I will read it. What did I think of the Goldfinch? I have a lot to say about this. I think it's a big book. So maybe I'll. What are your headline feelings? My headline feeling is that I think it's a dive right in and yomp book. I read 200 pages just in one go. Wow, you were yomped. Yes. And I think it is that kind of book where it's like, it's a very plot driven good story that, yeah. that just captures your attention straight away. So that was my initial feeling. I do have other things to say about it, but I think we'll do, I'll, I'll hold back on those. Hold fire for the moment. Saf, initial thoughts? Um, well, I was actually thinking when you were talking about Donna Tart, like I actually only heard of Donna Tart a couple of years ago. So what? Yeah, I, but, but... Who even are you? I don't... <laughs> we love you, we respect you. <laughs> I don't know. You have a place at this table. I... I, yeah, I just didn't know. I, I'd heard people talk about The Secret History mm -hmm. and I eventually was like, okay, I'm going to read it and I loved it. I thought it was amazing. I've, I've also got The Little Friend upstairs and I started it and just couldn't get into it. But us doing this deep dive has made me think, right, I actually need to go back to The Little Friend and, and commit to it. Yeah, so I, I'm quite a newbie Donna Tartt fan, really. Goldfinch, for me, like initial, an, initial summation... A really good book. A really good book. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. I liked it. That's, that's what I have to say. Good. Initially. Well, that's a positive start. I'm going to save my thoughts for our discussion, but can we start by talking about the structure and the genre of the book, if that's not too heavy? No, let's do it. So I've got two quotes here because I kind of feel like they, they sum up some of my thoughts. So writing in the New York Times, the legendary critic Michiko Kakutani said, Mrs. Tart." Mrs. Ms. Tart? Miss Tart, sorry. It's <laughs> marrying her off there. <laughs> Lady Tart. La <laughs> Lady Tart has written a gloriously Dickensian novel, a novel that pulls together all her remarkable storytelling talents into a rapturous symphonic whole and reminds the reader of the immersive stay-up-all-night pleasures of reading. And then another critic at the time of publication said, it's a crime novel, an art history thesis, an LGBTQ coming-of-age story, and a meditation on toxic masculinity, all wrapped up in 976 pages. So it's a big novel. There's clearly space for it to be a lot of different things. Do you think it worked? Do you think it was all those different things? No, well, yes, but I don't know about an LGBTQ coming in of age story. I, f I feel very similar to like our discussion with A Little Life, where that was 
quoted as being, I can't remember what the quote was, but they said it was a, a gay cult novel kind of thing. Yeah. Like, And we didn't really feel that. And I didn't really feel that with this. Of course, there is that slight relationship, which I won't go into too much. It's relationship slash friendship between two of the characters, which I think will come on to. They were roommates. Yes. and and But, <laughs> I mean, I didn't really feel it was an... There wasn't that much queerness going on, I didn't think. Do we? Should we just name that relationship yes, now? Yes, yes. Boris and Theo. Yeah. My feeling about Boris and Theo was more that they were horny boys... Not necessarily that they were gay. Yeah, yeah. just that they, yeah. they didn't really have a lot of people around them. They were in yeah. that dusty, kind of desolate part of Las Vegas, like a housing estate. There was only those two. The, they didn't the, have a lot of choice. They were raunchy adolescents <laughs> in a sex desert. And when you, I mean, I know boys who went to boarding school who are definitely not gay now, but while they were at boarding school and isolated, they fooled around because there was no one else to fool around with. So we don't think it's an LGBTQ coming of age no, novel. I just think like it might they be a, think... a coming of age novel. Yeah, but not not an LGBTQ plus one. Okay, what did you think of the idea that it's a crime novel? Because I certainly thought the latter half of the book styled itself as a bit of a thriller. I found the second half of the book less successful. It had less of that Im- absolutely immersive quality than the beginning. I I didn't enjoy it as much. I really agree with you there. I it felt like a separate novel to me almost mm. the the latter part of the book I was so caught up in th- from the very beginning in Theo and what was going on for him I still stuck around when we skipped to kind of and it had been eight years and he was back in New York City and he was more grown up and yeah I was still really into it then but by that very latter part I did I don't want to say I lost the will to live a little bit but I did feel like mm, it it felt a bit more cliche. Yeah. Yeah. I, I completely agree. I think it was, for me, the plot was too fast paced. Mm. And I think we we lost a lot of the, the richness of the character description that had been the novel up to that point. Yeah. And it didn't really feel like it had to be fast paced because it's what, an 800 and something page book? Like she had enough room in that book to... to... Plus, I mean, I, you know, I think we are going to talk about addiction later, but I did just get to the point where it's like another description of Theo on drugs or drunk... We know he's taking drugs. We know he's drinking. Could we maybe do something else? Yeah, absolutely. And I think with the end of the book, it's quite philosophical, isn't it? We, we, we're skipping to the end now, but we, we <laughs> leave him and he's quite lonely and he's, he doesn't really know what life is, is going to hold for him. And that, that felt a little bit weird to kind of snap back into that philosophical mode of storytelling after we'd had the, the kind of heist in Yeah, because you lost it and then it suddenly, for the very last few pages went back to it and it felt yeah i'm not sure about that okay i I wrote in my notes i did not like theo's final monologue which was the opposite of show don't tell the novel's thesis is clear without theo needing to explain it michelle thomas you've passed your viva (laughs) now i did have a question seeing as we're just discussing this end bit i might as well ask this now when i read that very last bit by theo was he like saying some of it didn't actually happen because I was a bit confused by some of the language in that very last part where he said, and this is how I've decided to tell this story. And it kind of hinted that perhaps he'd embellished parts of it or because it was from his journal, right? So he's saying yes. And I... Yeah, I mean, for me, it was just, it was Donna Tart commenting on the, you know, how unreliable all storytelling is. 
how we do embellish with our own emotions, how we shorten things or extend things depending on how we feel and, and how we want to portray ourselves when we're looking back on our memories. Because I, I finished this book in the bath and I was like, oh, you know, I read it quite a few times thinking she's not done that annoying cliche thing you know like they do it in tv quite a lot like and dallas it was all yeah. a dream yeah <laughs> no I he didn't. was in the shower all the time <laughs> yeah and you think none oh. of it ever happened and actually theo's gonna wake up in that museum yeah he was just on a really long like trip like he's I, in a coma yeah i just <laughs> i felt yeah i was a bit like hmm, i've got all the i've given this book hours and hours and now i'm a bit confused by that very last kind of monologue I think it was also it was talking about all that survives of us is art kind of thing mm. and but I didn't feel that she needed to say it. I just felt it was a bit like, you've read all this, but here I'm just going to, in case you're a bit stupid and not paying attention, I'm actually going to tell you what I mean, which yeah. I didn't think was necessary. I mean, I appreciate that. A bit like, a, a bit like um, you know, like um, at the end of like a, a, an assignment or an essay where you have to conclude and yes. wrap up and you're like, let me summarise. Don't you feel like the ending kind of, it fitted with the, the general vibe of the whole book, which was, it felt a bit sliding doors at times. Like his life could have gone one or two directions mm -hmm. at any point. And the ending is kind of like, well, uncertainty, chance has all played a part in my life. And this is the story I'm going to tell. I'm going to be the editor now. This is how I'm going to fashion the narrative. Yes, I just think it was such, it was an, it's an incredible book. And that just felt, it felt like Donna was clever enough to not need that. Yeah. I Donna, agree. you're better than this. You are. Come on. Come on. Donna, see me. <laughs> see, see me, Lady Tart. Shall we, shall we talk about the characters? Yes. I mean, the novel is told exclusively from Theo's perspective, so it probably makes sense to think about the various characters in the novel in terms of his relationship with them. But should we talk about Theo himself first? Was he likeable? Does he need to be likeable? Did you always agree with his actions and his reasons for doing what he did, Michelle? Uh, I don't think anyone needs to be likeable. I think Theo is obviously damaged. I mean, you know, he's lost his mother. His dad's a wanker. He doesn't really have anyone else in his life. Poor he? Larry. Well, he was a wanker. Okay, all right. <laughs> And yeah, I mean, and even his friends, I mean, apart from Andy, he doesn't really have any other friends. His ex-friend just stops talking to him. And then he has Boris and that's kind of it really until he moves back to New York. I think the Las Vegas years are, are pretty grim. I'm As a mother of a 13-year-old, I was slightly horrified that this is what my boy might be getting up to in the next few years. I can keep a, keep him locked in his bedroom. What? International art heist. <laughs> International art heist, um, drug taking, alcohol abuse, generally just, yeah. yeah. But I think a part of that came around because he didn't oh, have completely the right, yeah, he didn't have the right <laughs> yeah. parental figures yeah. to, he didn't have any attention and love from, from family or, or friends, like all, it was just him and Boris and they had nothing to do there. Yeah. Um, no, 100%. I liked Theo. I didn't necessarily agree with everything he did. Mm. But I think he came across very human, very complex, and you could... Donna built the character really well in that you could see why he did what he did. Like, you... I felt like I understood Theo, and I could... Almost felt as though I could understand his reasoning and how... The decisions that he made. I'm like, well, I can see how you got there. I might not do that myself, but... Yeah, completely. Yeah. I mean, I saw child Theo as a survivor, and then adult Theo some questionable decision-making, but even in, in his relationships with Pippa and Kitsy, which were fairly dysfunctional, I still thought he was quite honourable. 
Yeah, he didn't. I didn't think he was a particular. He wasn't a player. No, and I didn't think he was a particular bad character. Like I don't think. Uh, obviously, he does end up killing people in our latter bit, which we've said the spoilers, so that's fine. That's not great. That's not great. Kids. <laughs> I don't think you're meant to do that. <laughs> but aside from like that, I don't think he did anything that awful. He obviously was a, was struggling with addiction. He wasn't treating people always the best or making the best decisions. But yeah, I didn't think he was like. The Awful. one person I think he treated badly was Hobie. Oh, interesting. Yes. Say more. How come? Well, because Hobie took him in, gave him a home, gave him a job. And I know Theo was, he thought he was helping with his little crime spree, selling fake antiques. He, you know, when he gets caught, he's been doing this for years and he's gotten away with it. And Hobie, I know, didn't ask any questions and he saved his business, but then it kind of spiralled out of control. That was quite heartbreaking, actually. Yeah. Now, thinking back on it, the, the the moment in the novel where Theo knows he's been busted by Lucius Reeve and he can't buy back the, the, the forged furniture and it puts everything at risk yeah. that he's built and that Hobie's built. And he finally tells Hobie, or Hobie works it out, I can't quite remember. He tells, he tells, he tells him. He tells him. He tells him because he's desperate. I mean, he's at that point where he's crying over the check that he can't force on this horrible man. Yeah, and Hobie's response is so muted and tight-lipped, but you can see that he's so disappointed mm. in Theo. He is, but he does also say within that scene that he did kind of turn a blind eye. Like, oh, I'm not... Yeah. I don't think he what did Theo did the was yeah. right, but equally, at no point did Hobie think... Wow, how has he made this much mm. money? But I don't think Hobie even looked at the money. I think Hobie was so non-businessy. Yeah, but if you're business partners, ultimately, yeah, but I think you just... have a responsibility. You're both you're both signing on those those like um, they don't have like the same self-assessments and tax returns as we do. But you're signing off on those tax returns and those bills. And if you go into something together as business partners, you've got a responsibility to find out what the other is doing. I know what you mean, mm. but I guess I feel it was like because Hobie didn't have to and he basically adopted Theo mm. when he came back to New York and he gave him a home and he gave him all this stuff and it was just like, oh, I just wish Theo had slowed his role with his criminal enterprises. I just think he just wasn't thinking and it was very like a kick in the teeth to Hobie that he'd done that. Yeah, I think it was. I don't think it was It was great to to Hobie. But I, I don't know. When he was doing it, I didn't think I, I didn't think it was I that bad. I really liked Hobie. It was Poor like Hobie. I, I did. I really <laughs> liked Hobie. I thought he was lovely and one of my favourite characters in the book. But equally, I mean, I kind of felt like the people that Theo was ripping off were, I didn't really like those people anyway. Like very wealthy people who, yeah, are all about status. Probably and, wouldn't miss a couple of thousand. dollars. Yeah. So I just kind of thought, mm, well, and, and, wasn't something. He was selling something for like seventy thousand dollars. It wasn't. Yeah, like but these people and these people are quid. willing to spend seventy thousand dollars <laughs> on on like art and these. Yeah, I just I I don't know that I agree with all that anyway. So I was just like, yeah, go for it, for you. But I mean, it was quite it was quite an advanced scheme. He was then buying stuff back so that it could be certificated, so it could have like a. But he was trail. only doing that when he had to. When they, when they, when they were questioning Yeah, if anyone questioned it, his way out was to buy it back and then that could legitimise it for him to sell it again. But he wasn't doing that with all of them. He only did that on the people that that raised questions. I think what you something I just wanted to pick up on mm. what you just said about that you didn't like those people and it's almost like they deserve what they got. And that's one of the things that I 
don't like particularly about this book it's like she has this moral compass and there are certain people who are good people and it's all tied up in notions of taste and it's quite snobbish yeah and and to be fair as you said that back to me it made me really hear what I'd actually said and that is quite a mean thing to say (laughs) but I'm stereotyping a whole (laughs) group of people based on on their earnings but I think Donna Tartt's doing that Mm. because it's like Theo's mother is basically a sort of angel so she's interested in art and culture but not in a grasping or selfish way so she's all uh, that's good taste and then mrs um andy's mother's name i can't think mrs barber mrs barber she's like one of the few characters in the book who's really got shades of gray because she has good taste but she's also cold and not very emotional most of the other people kind of seem to fall into one or other that's interesting though because that's true actually but i did think i thought that theo's mum I thought we saw her like that because we're seeing it through the eyes of a child because that's how Theo remembers his mum and he only knew her as a child. So he's got quite a childlike view of his Mm. mum being angelic and being just an all-round, you know, good person because he loved her so much. That's what I was thinking. But then you get that also from, like, the lawyers, sort of like, oh, and she was so amazing and she was this and she was that. And it's like, you know... Uh, I thought he was just like a bit of a leechy man. He was. Fancied her. <laughs> Possibly. M- Mr Bracegirdle. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> pause for that name <laughs> i i liked audrey there was definitely a degree of making her out to be a bit of a saint but i i agree with you sath that was young theo remembering his mother who he missed very very much i thought it was quite interesting that audrey had lost her parents when she was young mm. and had gone to live with her evil aunt Bess. and Pip- pippa and and Pippa had lost yes. her parents, yes. and then was being dealt with by her aunt. So there's there's kind of a lot a lot of absent parents in this novel. They're either dead or they they choose to be absent. Dickensian. Dickensian. It, well, it is very Dickensian <laughs> in that sense. It's very David what, Copperfield. Why? Because I've not read any Charles Dickens. So or, uh, most of the characters in Dickens are orphans. Right. Okay. <laughs> Just for anyone else listening, like me, who's like, I haven't actually read. Charles no, it was Dickens, good. It was so. good to have that explanation. And I was thinking about his Theo's father, Larry. What did we think of Larry? You don't really get to know Larry that well. I really? Mean, I well, not really. I mean, he's hardly ever there. He's obviously just like as dodgy as, and and then he beats Theo up, and then he dies. That's true. And asks <laughs> him to take <laughs> yeah. money from his trust fund. Yeah, and then and then obviously when he can't get the money, he dies. I I you'd I, wonder I, whether he did it on purpose. Mm. Ooh. I thought Larry was just really troubled and lacking self-awareness so just no awareness of how all of his behavior is affecting his child his like constantly making mistakes and tripping he'd owe money he'd he'd be you know in a bad relationship his addiction was bad whatever 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 what quick fix is there to make this better without ever thinking how is this affecting my wife how is this affecting my girlfriend how is this affecting Mm. my child i was just going to say plus obviously i'm an alcoholic so i was Drink less, but I'll just switch to another form of self-medication. You're talking about Larry? Yes. Okay, not yourself. Not me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's another conversation. That is, another podcast, again. I mean, Larry's obviously a damaged individual. He's very dysfunctional. What really touched me, though, was Theo trying to keep the love between him and Larry alive. And there was one moment where I found myself tearing up in the book. And it was when... Theo later on talks to Bracegirdle and says, I couldn't have got that money from my trust fund, could I, when my dad asked? And Bracegirdle says, 
yes, you could have. Mm. I could have given it to you. I just didn't really like the sound of him. Um, he sounded like a rogue. And there's that moment where it's not said, but you can kind of feel all these thoughts rushing through Theo's mind. If only I'd got that money, my dad might not have died in that mm. car crash. Well, and I for me, that just I just thought that was absolutely devastating. Well, the thing is, poor, poor Theo. I mean, no one's ever really explicitly said to him, this isn't your fault. I think he carries a lot of guilt, a lot of it unsaid, yeah. but he's moving through the world, losing the people around him. And he hasn't really got any kind of wiser, older people around him to be like, look, you know, you couldn't have changed these things. Like this is, this was nothing to do with your behavior. And it's totally normal when you face trauma to, to you know, if you lose a parent or things like that, to think it's my fault. Children often do think, oh, this must be because of me. And if you're never, if that's never corrected, you'll grow up thinking that. But part of what was frustrating is that there's this attempt to give him all this support, but all the people who are trying to give him the support all seem to be completely useless. I and mean, the various counsellors and therapists and people that he sees, the, the, you know, the ones assigned him by the school and stuff, they're just awful. Well, I think it's too late by that point, isn't it? I think he's already been through so much. And then no, that's when he just immediately afterwards, when he yeah. goes to live at Andy's house, he's in school oh, okay. in I New York. I was, yeah, okay. There's the social workers, there's yeah. teachers at school who try and comfort him with their own stories of grief, which <laughs> don't land well at all. There's the grandparents that don't want anything to do with him. Oh, I think they sent him a bus ticket. <laughs> Only after quite a long time. Yeah. Well, they sent a card. The, yeah, sort of a card, but a postcard or something like, yeah. oh, ter and, terribly sorry your mum died. And then I guess there's Larry, who we've just discussed, Zandra, mm. his wife, partner, who's pretty useless, Mr. Barber, who is having, like, moments. He's got his own moments. He's got his own stuff going problems. on. Boris's father. It's really only Hobie. He's the responsible adult in the room. So he is he is pretty much alone. What about some other characters? I, I might be a bit controversial and say, I really didn't like Pippa or Kitsy. I thought Pippa was really anodyne and boring and just kind of a bit, a bit listless. Pippa's, and, and I, I thought Pippa, Pippa was like a romantic pixie dream, you know, pixie dream girl, whatever that saying is. That's funny because we were just talking about this last week. Manic mm, pixie dream girl. It. Okay, Except not manic, just... Pixie Dream Girl. It's, she's just like the thing that Theo glommed onto and has never, yeah, that's never how stopped I thinking about. But they don't really have any kind of genuine relationship, well, really. Yeah, he meets her in a chapter called Morphine Lollipop. Mm. And when he kisses her, it numbs all the pain. Yeah. So maybe that's what she's there for. Yeah, and she's obviously very tightly wrapped up in the, his first trauma at, mm. at the museum. I think it's more what she represents for him. I don't think he's clear in his own head. He thinks, I think he thinks that he loves her, but they don't really have a relationship of any kind. I mean, nearer the end, as they get older, they're a bit yeah. bit closer because they've had these years of her visits and, and, and the dinners with Hobie and what have you. But ultimately, to me, it was like, I, I think it's more just a trauma bond. They've both mm. been through yeah. the same thing. She's still alive. She lived, she survived too and... To, to Theo, that means... And she actually had, love. like, physical damage in a way mm. that he didn't. So maybe seeing someone who's even more damaged than him in a way is a consolation. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that last section where they meet up and she says, oh, we're both damaged goods, we can't get, be together for that reason, it didn't really land for me because, as you've, as you've just been saying, it felt like a very chaste, nothing-y relationship. So it didn't really feel like the culmination of this big... 
yeah, Tristan to, in an Isolt moment. <laughs> to me, it was like, yeah, we can't be, you can't be together because you, you don't, you've never really had that many conversations. You don't know what you both, apart from the yeah. bit of music, like, yeah. you've not just, spent enough time p- you've together. You've bombed to, each other. Yeah, like, you, you, there's nothing really there, like, to build a relationship well, apart from the from. very expensive necklace. Which you didn't accept anyway, and he mm. left in, what, in a shoe outside a room or something, didn't he? That's romantic. Well, Hobie didn't, was not at all happy about that either. He was like, stop it, what are you doing? Yeah, don't make a fool of yourself. Mm. Kitsy, I just couldn't get over how much of a brat she was in the early stages of the book. I just didn't buy that she'd, she'd grown into this beautiful socialite that he was having a relationship. It just didn't didn't seem to stick. Because she wasn't really having a relationship with no. him. No. No, she was in love with <laughs> Tom Cable, wasn't she? Yeah. She was literally, ultimately, I thought she was only with Theo to make her mum happy. Yeah. Yeah. And to do what was what would make everyone, you know, this is the yeah, her socially brother, acceptable. Yeah, like Platt would be happy. Yeah. He he was a, a good enough figure in the ways that Tom Cable wasn't for her to take out with her friends and all that kind of thing. But yeah, ultimately she didn't like him at all. I, I could see that she'd grown into someone beautiful. That I thought was believable because Mrs. Barber is sold as, although very icy, a, a well put together and beautiful woman. But yeah, character-wise, I just thought she was a bit of a bitch. She's like an Upper East Side <laughs> wasp character, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, just, I, I mean, I don't, the whole idea, like it, it said a couple of times that she doesn't, she doesn't like any serious conversation. It's like, well, why are you then with a man like Theo who has been through so much trauma and clearly has a lot of emotions? He's because an addict. He drunk. He's drunk. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, but like that, that was all obvious. Why would you choose that person mm. who clearly is going to have those moments where serious conversations are going to be need to had and you can't have them you just giggle i suppose she's got that kind of lifelong relationship with him from childhood yeah but that doesn't mean she needs to go out with him. maybe it's another trauma <laughs> bond her family took him in when he was mm. at his greatest need and i mean she does say at some point that she kind of felt guilty about the way that she treated him when she was younger so maybe it's kind of a pity relationship or, I don't know, a mix of those things. I think a lot of it is to do with the mother, though, because basically she's turned into Miss Havisham in her bedroom all alone. And um, Kitsy's a Stella and Theo is Pip. And they are being pushed together by their families. More Dickensian tropes. Yeah. Sorry. If um, you don't know what I'm talking about, great, great expectations. Okay. Wikipedia. <laughs> Got Wikipedia. it. <laughs> Can we talk about Tom Cable? I think he's one sure. of my favourite characters in the novel. He's really? only in it for a couple of lines. Yeah, so he's, he's not, there's not much to him. <laughs> he okay. smokes behind the bike shed. He has a huge impact on the course of the novel. He absolutely, he is the guy that gets Theo into smoking behind the bike sheds and breaking into homes in the East Hamptons mm. so that he gets excluded from school so I that they go to the Met so that they're there when the terrorist bomb goes off it's the inciting incident yeah absolutely mm. and then when that moment when theo's wandering the streets looking for kitsy oh no he's not looking for her, is he he's just kind of wandering he's, a bit, he's moping around and then he sees kitsy kissing tom cable and it's almost like tom is the version of that theo could have been of himself if if his mother hadn't died. Do you think, though, because Cable is is explained by everybody else as a bit of an arsehole? Yeah. So would he want to be Cable? Would that who we'd want him to be if <laughs> well, he didn't have... Cable's really true to himself. He does whatever he wants. Remember when... Um, the, I don't when... know that we know enough about Cable to know he's true to himself, do we? Well, when, I don't know. when Audrey dies and mm. uh, Theo goes back to school, he gets attention from his friends and his teachers and the social workers, but... 
Cable completely ignores him to the mm. point where Theo fantasizes about punching him in the yeah, face. Yeah, which is, but that was horrible. That was so mean. Well, they went from being friends to being like, well, he basically ghosts him. Yeah, because I don't think he he wanted to be associated mm. with someone that was sad and 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 that people were kind of like tiptoeing around. Yeah, and I'm not advocating that kind of behavior or response. I think you know, support your friends if they've been in a terrorist attack, obviously. But I just thought he was a hundred percent himself, and I think. Kitsy saw that in him as well. And that's why she chose him, because she had the choice between a damaged, dysfunctional Theo or someone who had just lived his life how, how he wanted to. I don't know. I Am I writing a new version of the Goldfinch? <laughs> I was just going to oh say that they, they probably... Tom Cable fan fiction. <laughs> who would he Tom have sex Kitsy. with? Tom Well, Kitsy, yeah. Um, but I was going to say is probably that they've... Because they they live that life, they, they're all there on the Upper East Side. So... They're probably going to the same parties and going to the same summer camps. And so Kitsy and Tom would have just been in each other's orbit that whole time, whereas Theo wasn't. He comes back into their orbit. So it, in a weird way, I mean, is, are these Kitsy's only two choices? Are there other men in New York? She doesn't have to pick between the two of them. This is true. I My thoughts, yeah, I don't... I don't... I didn't necessarily get that while I read in the novel. Like, I didn't feel at any, at any point that Tom was being true to himself. I thought... He maybe is true to himself, but I just thought he was selfish. All of his actions throughout the entire book aren't very nice. Like, they might be what he wants, but it's massively not nice to anybody else in the sense that he could have told the teachers it was him smoking and not Theo, and instead he doesn't. He lets Theo be drawn into it, and thus Theo has a meeting at school because he speaks to Tom, and Tom's just like, don't say anything. Like, mm. you know, like, doesn't back his friend, then doesn't talk to him and ghosts him which is really nasty just so his own popularity isn't affected. Then he's with Kitsy and, and knows that Kitsy is with Theo and still is like, don't give a fuck, I'm going to still keep seeing... Not that nice to Kitsy, which is why Platt doesn't even want Kitsy with him. He's like, he's a womanizer. He's like, he's not great. He's been doing all this dodgy stuff. Like, just thought he was an arsehole. <laughs> I just, and I think Kitsy was attracted to him because women always are... Attracted, attracted to the bad to boy. the bad boys it's more exciting theo isn't exciting okay. <laughs> well Theo's a criminal with, yeah, a, but with no, a drug addiction but nobody he's really quite knows exciting. That. but he's just not selling it is he really <laughs> no he's not he's it's not, not part like, of his brand it's just a yeah it's like a chemical thing like the the if you if a, if a man is like or a woman whoever is like hot and then cold you are more attracted to them because it's that excitement and until you're chasing you the therapy. high yeah until you gain self-awareness <laughs> and reflection and stuff but I, yeah kitsy of course would i'm that i'm sure that's why tom got lots of women also i can imagine because her family don't like him there's always that element as well the, that helps the, yeah you know. so she's rebelling yeah 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 okay still still very much that that young bratty girl but just playing it differently are there any other characters we want to think about we should talk about Boris, really, shouldn't we? We should talk about Boris. Potter. Potter. <laughs> that was the name that Boris gave Theo because he wore Harry Potter-style glasses. Which he yeah. still apparently wears into his like, late 20s. Or yeah, they're, just, they're getting, getting bigger the and end. bigger and more expensive. <laughs> um, okay, Saf, what did you think about Boris? Interesting. He made me laugh a lot of his lines in the book, especially when they're, they're younger and uh, like that Las Vegas time. Um, he's quite funny, even if he is not a great influence on Theo and probably Theo on Boris too. Um, I, I quite liked him. I didn't, obviously I didn't. By the time we find out that he stole the painting, I mean, when I found that out, I had no idea. And, and to be fair, I thought that was really impactful because 
perhaps just because I'm quite anxious that all that scene in kind of the middle part where, you know, where Theo takes the what he thinks is the painting and puts it in storage yeah. and he's paying two years in advance and, and all those times he's worrying about it. I had so much anxiety for that because I'm quite an anxious person anyway. I have general anxiety disorder, so I, I'm anxious about everything all of the time. And I could really, like, I spent a lot of time thinking, oh, my goodness, the amount of anxiety I would feel about this painting and not, you know, not knowing how to deal with it. And then I just laughed so much when it turned out that Boris had actually taken it and he had been so anxious for so long about the painting and the painting hadn't even been there. But obviously, anyway, I'm on a tangent there. No, but... no, I thought that was like one of the big plot reveals in yeah, the whole book. Yeah, well, it, it was. And then you think it did change my view of Boris. But it... also I loved the way that Boris was like, what, you didn't check? I mean, yeah, well, because I mean... that's who Boris is. He would have opened it and gone, oh, where's my painting? I thought Boris was true <laughs> to himself. Like the fact he stole the painting, yeah. I was like, well, what can you expect? He, he, mm. That follows, it tracks with what we've seen of him so far. Um, and even his version of fixing things, right? By actually just drawing Theo the only thing I found frustrating in the book was that part of the book to me I was like well problem solved Theo you don't have the painting anymore just let the painting be lost problem over the anxiety of like someone finding that you've got it that it would affect Hobie that's been dealt with for you because you don't have it but they didn't believe him who didn't what's his name called that man oh Lucius Lucius Reeve who has like five other names yeah yes but I mean like ultimately like let kind of let lucius let lucius come and search everything be like come find it go you know like that he didn't have it so it wouldn't be found he didn't physically have it but emotionally the 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 painting of the goldfinch was more complicated than that for him wasn't it theo because the the painting was a link to his dead mother Hmm. i yeah that part i i was a bit frustrated because i felt he did a bit of a um a 180 there i felt that for the first half of the book he's like oh the painting, although he did love the painting, everything was like, I should really get rid of this painting. I'm going to do that at some point. I'm going to do that at some point. All this anxiety about the fact he's got it. Then he gets what he wants, what what he says he wants, which is that the painting just disappears and is no longer his problem, sort of, in the sense that Boris has taken it. And then all of a sudden it's like, I need the painting back. Oh, my God, I've lost the painting, the painting. And it's like, well... Do you know you I... can't have it both ways. I read that in my cliff notes. Mm. I read that <laughs> it was a kind of a... a a bit of symbolism for the grief that Theo was experiencing mm. for his mother. And they do say that grief comes in waves. And sometimes when you think that the really bad grief has gone away, it actually comes back years later. So I think he had mixed feelings about the painting. He wanted to get rid of it. He wanted to stop grieving his mother and perhaps start remembering her more positively. But then when it was gone... He felt that loss really acutely. Yeah, I just felt he, I think that was, I, I think you're right. And But to me, I was just like, that's fine to be really torn up and realise that now that it's gone, that's brought up a lot for you. Doesn't mean you need to go to Amsterdam with Boris with no idea what's really going on and get yourself into a load of crap like that. That otherwise he wouldn't have had the exciting last third but we didn't have the exciting <laughs> last third yeah we've already said that <laughs> lady tart could have cut the last third of this novel yeah really i just want to say about boris i liked him he wasn't an idealist he put his life together um from the fragments that he found around him mm. if he didn't like his alcoholic father he latched on to larry and zandra and i thought he was a really quite moving, affectionate character who gave Theo that kind of necessary emotional support that was lacking from so many of the other characters, even if they were there and, and supposed to be supporting him, like Kitsy, He was a bit icy and distant. So I think Boris 
worked. And he was a completely believable character as well. Quite lovable. Yes, yeah. Also, I think Theo's Vegas sojourn would have been absolutely desperate if he hadn't had Boris. If he was just there on his Game yeah. Boy. That would have been horrendous. It would have, but equally, I still think that would have been better for him because I I don't know that he would have got into drugs in the way that he He did. He might have starved to death, though. He might have, (laughs) or he might have studied and worked really hard and and realised that that was his ticket out was through kind of like education and and things rather than drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. I'm going to move us on. Mm. I just want us to have a think about any key themes that really stuck out in the book. So we've talked about loss, innocence and experience. We've talked about trauma bonds, trauma relationships. Michelle, you talked about addiction. Was that? Did you feel like that, that was a big part of the book? <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's one of those things, really, isn't it? Because obviously, when, when you talk about generational trauma, obviously Theo's father is an addict. Theo becomes an addict. Um, Mr. Oh God, why I can't remember anyone's names today. Um, Andy's father, Mr. Barber. Yes. Yes. Has mental health issues and is obviously was medicating, was medicating. So there's a lot of people medicating, whether it's self-medicating or being given drugs by their doctors. So there's some serious, and Boris, obviously, there's a lot of, a lot about addiction and drugs in this book. And I think the addiction side, yes, the sort of descriptions of people on drugs can get a bit overdone. But I think it's, I, agree. I think it's of its time in a weird way. Yeah, I, th- I think it can. And to me, I guess it's almost a reflection or I felt as though it was meant to be a reflection of what it's like to be an addict in that sense. And that it is just this constant. You are your life becomes getting the drugs, feeling ill because you're not on the drugs periods of trying not to it is this little cycle that goes on and on and it is repetitive and i think it feels repetitive even to the addict yeah and it's not a theme but you're talking about reminders and kind of repetition Mm. i thought that was a really nice part of the book that there's a lot of mirroring and pairs Mm. it seems in the book so the the painter of the goldfinch carl fabritius he died i think in the year that he painted the the goldfinch from an explosion at a gunpowder factory in Delft, where he lived in the Netherlands. And that kind of mirrors Audrey's death at the Met. And then there's the, the painting of the, the goldfinch itself. with It's kind of chained up, isn't it? It's on its like little... It's on a perch. Yeah, and, mm. and then you get Theo chained to the painting because it represents something about his mother. And it's also his kind of like ties to the underworld. And we already t- talked about Audrey losing her parents, but then lots of other people lose their parents. It seems to be a kind of a ripple going through the narrative. I mean, one of the things about being orphaned, it's a it, it's a classic trope from children's fiction, which I think has come from the Victorian fiction. So in Ed- Edwardian fiction, often they're dead parents or they're sick parents or they're sent away. The children are sent away so they can have adventures. And this is because if you've got loving, responsible parents, if when Theo's mother died, if his dad swooped in, got him to therapy, you know, got him into a great school and had did everything, then you've got no novel. So it's only the fact of those absentee, useless adults that actually enables the book well, to take place. Yeah, because if his dad had, had not fled and his dad had not had his addiction and he'd had a loving relationship with both his mum and his dad, the loss might not have been so profound. Well, exactly. And he would have had support yeah. and he would have had a stable home life with three yes, meals and a day perhaps and, yeah, yeah the people <laughs> in school that spoke to him and the therapist that he saw they, they all might have had a chance of getting in 
I want to, just wanted to say while we talk of themes, like this was the kind of book that I was kind of, and I don't know if it's perhaps because I didn't do English literature, so my brain might think about books in a slightly different way, but I was just very lost in the story. Yes. I wasn't really, it wasn't until we were doing our notes for this that I saw all of Joseph's list of themes and thought, oh yeah, like <laughs> those things were going on in the book. I was kind of just lost in the story and, and was just kind of like page turning, like what's going to happen, what is going on here? I really wasn't thinking too much. Like nothing was really popping up for me in terms of themes until I was kind of... Yeah. I think that's, to me, that was the, is the strength of this novel. And it, it's interesting because obviously it was very much acclaimed and and loved, but it was a bit of a Marmite book because there was a whole... I read a Vanity Fair article, which is all about... They actually... Somebody described this as the death of literary fiction. Oh, Ooh. that's yeah. harsh. It got some very harsh criticism because it, it was like it's a page turner, but when you finish it, it's empty. There's, n there's nothing there. That's really interesting because mm. it, was, it got a lot of critical acclaim in America when it was published, but it was absolutely ripped into by the British press. The European press loved it, but the British press said it was a children's book mm. or a young adult book. Harry Potter. Yeah. They literally did but, but written how, for adults. But how yeah, I could, oh. Because it's a bit, and then, and then, and it's, and, and it, it's like lacking. a chronicle. Yeah. Almost. It, it, mm. it's, it, it doesn't go deep. Okay. So we've spoken about strengths and weaknesses. What rating would you give the book, Michelle? <sighs> Three and a half. Hmm. Saf? 4.2. It would have been Ooh. higher, but Ooh. it's too long. That last that last bit brought it down for me. But I thought it was really good. I really enjoyed it. I am going to say a four. I, I really enjoyed this book. I mostly enjoyed it. <laughs> good. Okay. <laughs> Shall we move on? I think we might have reached that part of the show where we try to help one of our listeners find their next must-read book. Are we ready, guys? We sure. are. Hi, Noble Thoughts. Um, loving the new podcast. Um, I was hoping you guys could do, give me some recommendations for autobiographies. I realised that when um, autobiographies are bad, they can be awful and kind of narcissistic and almost verging on self-help books. But when <laughs> I think when they're good, they're really um, it can be fascinating and give you a really interesting perspective that you you, you otherwise wouldn't get. So um, some of my favourite books have have been Andre Agassi's autobiography and um, Dave Grohl's. And also loved um, Anthony Kiedis's from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Um, but yeah, any, any, anything you can recommend that's worth a read would be great. Thank you. Okay, so that is Edward looking for autobiographies. Who wants to go first? Well, given that Edward mentioned he enjoyed Dave Grohl's autobiography and uh, the one about the Red Hot Chili Peppers, I thought I was going to go for a music recommendation and I'm going to recommend Girl in a Band by Kim Gordon from the Sonic Youth which charts her well it charts her growing up in in hippie California and then her move to New York where she famously meets Thurston Moore and starts Sonic Youth and then the very messy breakup of the band um, and also her marriage and then the aftermath and I thought this was a really touching raw portrait of what it means what it, what it's like to be a woman in the music industry nice michelle what are you recommending today i've also got a music recommendation as well as a couple of others um my music one is punk legend viv albertine's book clothes 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 music 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 boys 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 which is story of a young woman growing up in london going to art school forming a band 
the band breaking up, moving out of London, getting involved in film and acting. But it's just really beautifully written and um, she's an amazing character. It's just a really, really good read. Uh, really, really good. <laughs> we can welcome sign up to the club. Yeah, welcome to the club, Michelle. <laughs> and then if you like sporting autobiographies, this isn't exactly an autobiography because um, horses can't write or talk, <laughs> but Sea Biscuit by Laura Hillenbrand is fascinating. Mm. It's a story of a racehorse and a jockey, but it's also um, it's set in America and it's set in the world of horse racing before there was really such a thing as health and safety. So it's insanely dangerous what these people are doing um it's like the wild west and it, it's just really well written so you get the horse and the and the jockey but you also get the kind of background and that world of racing and finally educated by tara westover is the story of a young woman growing up in a kind of extremist religious prepper family and her the story of how she gets out of it and ends up going to cambridge university Nice, good selection there. Now, I did struggle with this one a little. I'm not musical. Like, I don't listen to a lot of music. My other half, Nick, is trying to educate me as he's a big music fan. But I, yeah, I listen to podcasts or I often drive in silence without even the radio on. So that makes a lot of people uncomfortable, but I quite like the silence. So yes, when Ed was, uh, Edward was talking about music autobiographies, I was thinking, oh, and then I was also thinking, mm, I don't read a lot of autobiography so I've gone kind of memoir-esque which I think overlaps not strictly an autobiography but I think it still works and I'm cheesing a little bit because I do know Edward so I think he will like these so I am recommending Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zorn so Crying in H Mart is a moving memoir about the complexities of mother-daughter relationships grieving forgiveness the power of food and how it connects us really beautiful and also quite insightful I think and I, I think it's a really good memoir um, and the other one is and takeaway stories from a childhood behind the counter by Angela Hugh so a kind of wryly funny but also moving memoir of growing up in a Chinese takeaway and a sobering account of racism and otherness in contemporary Britain I think it's a really really good insight into one person's experience of what it feels like to 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 be othered within within Britain I think it's it's really insightful to be able to to read that and read Angela's experiences. And I think it was just also really fascinating to see what it was like to grow up with a family running a Chinese takeaway. It was something I didn't really have any experience of. And I, yeah, I found the book funny, but moving and and really recommend it to everybody. Hope, hope you like something, Edward. Enjoy, Edward. Okay, guys, that's just about the end of the show. Next week, we will be taking a week off to recharge our batteries. So we'll see you the week after for our very first author spotlight. We will be looking at Rebecca Mackay and four of her novels. So make sure you join us for that. We'll also be chatting about all of the books we've read that week and dishing out some great recommendations to more of our lovely listeners. As always, links to everything we've been talking about today will be in the show notes. Please feel free to like and subscribe to the pod. Tell a friend or leave us a review. It all helps. If you're looking for your next great read and you'd like to be part of the show, send us your recommendation request to ntpramsgate at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram and TikTok at novelthoughts underscore pod. Bye. Bye. Bye.